it's important, I think, to remind us that one of the things that is so powerful about the resurrection is that when Jesus was raised, it proved that God was satisfied with His offering of Himself. I mean, it declared forever that God was satisfied with what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He lives, and therefore we know one day we have a promise of a future. If He hadn't, if He had died in His sins, if the cross would have been it and we had never heard of the resurrection, we would never know if God was satisfied with what He accomplished for His Son. But in the resurrection, it's proved, it proves that. That's what Romans 4 tells us. And I think it's just a good reminder that we constantly remind ourselves of that. As we get started this morning, if you would just bow with me and we'll uh, pray together. Father, You know uh, the magnitude of the, the situation in Sodom this morning as we look at what happened there. Lord, You know how how sinful we really are. Lord, we know that perhaps there's no closer glimpse of the fallen condition of humanity than in this chapter. Lord, I just pray today, even though we're going to talk about such difficult subjects, that we would not fail to see that mercy has been extended through Your Son, that it's been proven by His resurrection, and that those who repent and trust in Him will not face judgment, but will be eternally blessed. Lord, I pray we would see that today. I pray You would open our eyes to see the horrific nature of sin, and we would also hear in that the marvelous picture of Your Gospel. In Christ's name, Amen. So as we start this morning by way of reminder, chapter 18, we're going to be in chapter 19, but chapter 18 we see Abraham visiting uh, with the Lord. The Lord actually comes to his house and the, the Lord affirms that they will have a son within the year. At the end of the chapter, as Abraham is walking out, they are as they walk away, um, and, and really the three are leaving, the Lord uh, spends some time with Abraham and He reveals to him what is about to take place in Sodom. Abraham begins to pray and he intercedes on behalf of Sodom. And he goes through a process and he starts with 50. Lord, if there are 50 righteous, and he goes to 40, and you keep going down, and he said, Lord, if there are 10 righteous, will you restrain your wrath from the city? And the Lord said, I will. What we find out is there are, no, there are not 10 righteous. And we find ourselves here understanding that God is going to judge Sodom, and He's going to do that with great clarity before us. Now, what does this show us? And I think there's a lot of things that we see. It's a reminder, listen, to the people of God, of the mercy of God extended to His people. That's one thing that we're going to see here. In this text, it is a reminder of God's mercy to His people. It's another thing, I think, just a reminder that God uses, listen, the judgment of the wicked to remind His people of His marvelous grace to them. And so I think you, kind of, you see that in this passage and you see this overwhelmingly. In the life of Lot... I think it's a reminder that God keeps extending mercy and His mercy just overflows. And you think, Lord, why would you continue to, to, why would you even rescue Lot? And you see God's enormous mercy in it. I think for today, too, like if you were to talk with someone in our world, sometimes we don't like talking about this, but it is a reminder that God is going to judge sin. 
He will judge sin. There's no question of that. It is clear here. It was clear in the flood. It is clear in this passage that God judges sin. Now, how does this warn the unbeliever? It is to call them today, if you're unbelieving here, it is calling you to repent and trust in Christ. You turn from your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. For those who claim belief in the Lord, it is a reminder that Hebrews 12 says, without holiness you will not see the Lord. Now we see God's marvelous grace in the life of Lot, but we understand that it is a warning to those who claim Christ, that you are not to walk in this way. It is a warning of the destruction of rebellion. It is the warning of the capturing of sin that kind of captures your thoughts and your way of living. And we see all of that on display. And so I think it's just important that we see all of that as we're moving forward. Our God must judge sin and sinners, because, but because of His great mercy, He will save His people. And we just kind of see that overwhelming in this passage. So as we begin this morning, just a reminder, I mean, there are some difficult subjects here. I'm going to try to be somewhat delicate just because of everyone that's in the room, but at the same time, we don't want to see or, or to like back away from the horrific nature of the sin in this passage. So as we begin, we look at verses 1 through 3. So Lot is sitting almost like Abraham. When you're watching Abraham, he, is, he was sitting outside of his tent. Lot now is sitting outside of the city of Sodom on the edge of the city at the gate. Now, it's just important to see that. And what we notice here is that Lot is hospitable to the angels. As they come to him, there are two coming forward. Really, we kind of say, okay, the third, God was there. He was with Abraham. The two go to the city. There are the two angels with the, that, were, that were there with Abraham and the Lord. And now they're entering into the city. Now, as we kind of move forward in that, we understand, number one, again, that Lot was hospitable to them. And he's going to be very nice to them. But, but the first thing I want you to kind of hit hard, I mean, just to think about, is that Lot, what we found out in Genesis 13, 12, that, God, I mean, that um, Abraham and Lot are together, and they look up, and Lot says, I'm going to choose to dwell there. And he chooses the Jordan Valley, and he, pinched his, he pitched his tent near Sodom. That's one of the things you see. He takes a step towards Sodom, and Sodom is rebellion. Genesis 14, it says that, Sodom, I mean, that, that, that Lot goes to dwell in Sodom. And so not only has he looked out and says, oh, that's beautiful, I'll go towards Sodom. Then he finds himself living in Sodom, and now he's sitting at the gate in Sodom. And it's kind of this picture that Lot has not only kind of become a part of the culture, he's potentially a leader in the culture. When there was an issue that we brought to someone, often the elders in the city would sit near the gate. And so we kind of see that. Now, we mentioned this last week, but I'm going to mention it again. In Psalm 1, it says, Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, so he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinner, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It's kind of it's this idea that there is a way of living that Lot seems to walk closely, he begins to, to dwell with them, and then he sits down there among the ungodly, living an immoral life. So it just I think it's important that we see that and we say, okay. Lot's progression is in this way. We see it moving forward. Now, again, though, we see him being hospitable, and he kind of looks like Abraham. We saw Abraham when he sees the three coming. 
Lot bows down before him. He asks him to come into his house. In that culture, it would be commonly understood that you would allow someone to lodge with you. And so he sees them. He says, hey, come and be in my house. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. And then he says, strongly urges them, come come to my house tonight and stay with me. Now, what's interesting about that, he gives them really kind of a bath for that time, something to wash their water, to wash their feet. He gives them a bed and a meal. It says he gives them the feast. So Lot kind of presents some pretty interesting things here. Now, but what happens is, so Lot brings these two angels in. We're not really sure that he knows what they, that they're angels. He just sees them. He calls them lords. He brings them into his house. And then about the time that they're going to go to bed, notice what happens. In verses 4, really through 11, what we see is the men of Sodom. And specifically right now in verses 4 and 5, that there's great darkness and corruption in Sodom. I mean, this really is, it's astonishing what is about to take place. Now here's what happens. The idea in this passage is that Lot's house is surrounded by a group of men who are longing to homosexually rape these angels that have come. That's the idea here. They're wrapping around the house. It says from the oldest to the youngest, every one of them, They are wrapping around the house and they are saying, send those people out. They're beating on the door. And they are wanting uh, to know them. That's the idea of of the sexual relationship with these angels they think are just men. It's a picture of the most dark and unbelievable sin imaginable. Over and over you think, how could this be? How could it be that a people, really a group of men in a city, could actually, I mean, in that kind of setting, and you think about it, literally, they're just coming out from their homes, coming out from their families, and they're wrapping around a house, and there's probably, it's probably like a mob there. And to think about, sometimes, you know, you think about a culture, and we talk about having things in the closet. They don't want anything in the closet. The skeletons aren't hid. They are outwardly doing this. It's a picture of some of the darkest of evil times. There's no one stopping these things. There's no one calling for it. There's no justice in this city. It's the idea that that truth is stumbled in the streets of this city and righteousness does not exist here. Even to the last man, it's just overwhelming corruption in this city. So you just see that taking place and going on. Now, what does Lot try to do? Lot responds. So he thinks, well, I'll step outside and I'll spend some time with these guys and try to talk with them. So he's almost in a sense, like you've, have you ever kind of walked through a door and closed it behind you and try to get things straightened out that other people won't hear? It's almost like this. They're silently moving out. And as they step out, and and Lot steps out, he closes the door and he tries to reason with these guys. And you see this. He's saying, I beg you, brothers, don't act so wickedly. I mean, it's just one of those things where he's saying, look, just don't do this. Just stop right now. Please stop. These people are under my care. But notice what happens. He also mentions something else. He says, why don't you take my daughter's? They've never been married. They've never had a relationship with men. Why don't you take them and in place of these men? And you're like, what? Are you kidding me? Is he really doing this in this moment? Is he saying, I will give my daughters up, just leave these men alone? And we have to understand, in that culture, and often in many cultures in this time period, 
If you brought into the society, you would say, look, women are property to you. They did not hold them in high regard. And so there's some elements where you say, look, look how far Lot's gone. She's property to him. His two daughters are. We'll send them out. Do with them as you please. This is a mob that is so evil and so dark and so sexually charged. It's horrendous picture here. And so you notice what is taking place. He is offering his daughters to them. But notice what they say to him. And I just think it's important that you see this because they're going to look at him and say, look, you get out of the way. We'll do worse to you. We're going to treat you in a more horrific way than we would treat them. And they begin to press on Lot. And they are pushing so hard on him, it's almost breaking his door. And you can imagine, it's crushing him. And they're pressing on him. And it's just a horrific picture. And they pressed on him. And really, they're about to break the door. And probably, potentially, they would have trampled and killed Lot. But the angels step in. And I just think it's important that you kind of see that. But before we stop, before we go there, you have to say, how far could sin take someone? You know, we could say our culture, our society is not as bad as it could be, but it progressively often gets worse. And you find somebody even personally, their sin grows until it's maddening. Ann and I have talked about just spending time with people that we've known for years and we've watched them and there's times where you look at someone and you say they are almost morally insane. They lose all concept of moral uh, sanity. They lose their minds in their sin. And sometimes you meet someone who's so, like maybe physically they would hurt someone because of their sin. Maybe you meet someone who's, who um, their love for drugs or alcohol would destroy their family. Sometimes someone would break up their family because of their sinful desires. You see it over and over and over again. There are people that are driven by their work, that it's their God, and they will do anything that is possible, even if it destroys everything around them. We do that with hobbies. There's so many forms of ways in which we can begin to be just almost like drunk in our sin and lose sight of everything else around us. These men have lost it. And you see this over and over and over again. Sometimes there's people whose tongues are so destructive in lives. They speak and it is filth. Not just, listen, I had somebody tell me the other day, as long as you don't use a cuss word, you can act however you want. And I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> that was really good. Are you serious? Are you really serious? I mean, are, are, are there not ways that your tongue can be more destructive than a cuss word? And absolutely. There, there's just all these different ways where whether it's with tongue or actions or addiction that can destroy everything around us. And these men have certainly in a more vivid picture than you could ever imagine embodied that. So what do the angels do? They step in, they reach out, they grab Lot, and they strike these guys with blindness. They're unable to see. I mean, can you imagine that? But what do they do? You think, what are they going to do here? They're struck with blindness. All of a sudden, they could see, and now they're blind. The lights have gone out. But what are they going to do? How far have these people gone? They've gone so far that it doesn't even stop them. 
They keep reaching for the door. They exhaust themselves trying to bust down the door. They can't see, but they're just feeling around because they are so involved in their sin that it is so addictive to them, it is so consuming them, that whatever they can possibly do to get that sin fulfilled, they will. Sin always does that. Have you ever looked in your life and thought, sin never just stays somewhere? You think, I can just think these thoughts. I can just think for a little while. I can indulge in some kind of fantasy. I can do that, but I never act upon it. But sin's not that way. It begins to take over the mind, and then the actions follow, and then those habits, and then all of a sudden it is so destructive that everything in you, even if it costs you your life, you'll continue in it. It's like someone who maybe drinks too much over and over and you say, look, you're going to die if you keep drinking in that way and they cannot stop because sin has a hold on them. And even if it destroys their body, they will continue. But how much more someone's soul? You keep indulging it until finally it destroys your soul. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger until all is lost. So as you continue in verses 12 and 13, the angels reveal what is about to take place. Now with Lot, he is there, he's dwelling in Sodom, and we begin to see this marvelous grace of God. One through revelation, God is going to say, this is what is about to take place. They went to meet Lot. They are in Lot's house, and all around them is going to be destroyed, but Lot will be saved now as we're kind of moving through that you'll notice what happens he says look you go out and you tell them what is tell anybody that you want to your anybody in your family now he had some son-in-laws his daughters had not actually been married but they had maybe been betrothed to them and so they were like engaged but in a much greater way and he goes to these son-in-laws it's possible that those son-in-laws very probable even that they may have been in the group struck blind I mean, there was this aspect where the whole city is this way, and they be, he, be, he shares with them what is about to take place, and they do not listen. But I want to mention one thing. Sometimes, now, you could get this, this is what the religious right does. Y'all ready? The religious right picks a couple of issues. They will pick out a couple of issues and pound them. They like to pound homosexuality, they like to pound abortion. And they go after those issues, and the Bible certainly tells us those are sins. But listen to what Ezekiel says about Sodom. Because it's not just this one sin, it's a myriad of sins. It says, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Did you hear that? It's not just this one sin. This one sin highlights the perversion in Sodom. But it's much more than that. 
They were proud and they had much and they had obtained a lot in this world and they had treasured it and they had plenty to eat and they loved to indulge themselves in all kind of frivolous things. And God said, you, you people who are so wealthy and they may attribute it to the gods that have blessed them and all this, but they did not love the needy. They did not take care of others. They were proud in their excess. Why is it that so often, and the Bible certainly highlights here this one issue, but it's bringing out more as we move ahead and as you look at Scripture. But here's the thing. Why do people not get as fired up about this issue or about materialism as they do this issue? Do you know why? Because somehow we've looked past the fact that that too is a danger, dangerous and damning thing. Materialism is just is a great sin before God and we're going to see that as we move forward. Now, but here's the thing, and I think kind of what takes place in this passage, and I want you to turn to Romans 1. I feel like we go there a lot, but I think it sets the stage for so many different things. This passage is related to a passage in Judges. In Judges, what you find out is there are, there's this city, a man goes into the city, and they want to do the same thing as what's going on in Sodom. He gives them his concubine. They kill her. It's a horrific story. Romans 1, again, picks up this same issue. Let's look at Romans 1.26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now listen to me. Over and over in this text, God gave them over. Sometimes God's judgment. You just, we need to understand this. Sometimes it's not fire and brimstone. Sometimes it's releasing you to do what you want. A culture released to live in complete sin ultimately destroys itself. But also, I want you to notice something. Verse 29. Because often we don't talk about verse 29 as much. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. What does all that mean? Covetousness. They're always wanting more. I mean, I know that struggle in myself. Malice. They're insulting others. They are full of envy. Wanting what someone else has. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteousness decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you see what's taking place here? This overwhelming picture of it's not just this one issue in Sodom. This highlights the unnatural uh, function of men and women. It's a complete rejection of God's design. But not only that, it's over and over. He's saying these rejecting things of God's design in our lives. We see it over and over and over and over again. So what takes place? Again, we see verse 14. Lot goes out. They think he's joking. And he ends up trying to speak of the coming wrath of God, but evidently Lot, maybe his life, maybe the way the way Lot used words, whatever, they did not trust what Lot was going to say. 
They were enjoying this present world. They're like the people in Noah's day and the people at the second coming of Christ who will stand there and they'll be giving people in marriage and they'll be building their own little kingdoms and they'll be living their lives and they'll be doing all these things and then the end will come like a thief in the night. Second, or 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, 2 and 3 said, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains. Anna? Alright, you got all right, as labor I'm joking. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. What what's what, what's he saying? He's saying these things will come and they're just turning aside, they're not listening, they think he's jesting, they're laughing about it. And notice what happens though, and this blows my mind. If you're studying this chapter, when I was studying it this week, I thought, good night, this is astonishing. Look at verses 15 through 17. When the morning dawned, after all this wild craziness has gone on during the night, when Lot woke up in the morning and it's time, the angels urged him, and what does he do? I mean, does this not blow your mind? He lingers. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm thinking like, don't you want to get out of this city? I mean, are you serious? I mean, these people have almost killed you the night before. They said they were going to do horrific things, unmentionable things to you. Everything about this is broken and ugly and, and, and just unbelievable. And he lingers. Why? Why does Lot linger? Why would he do that? Maybe the passing pleasures of sin had a grip on his heart. Maybe he had a really big business. And he was doing really well. Maybe he had respect and he had always wanted that and he loved the city. Maybe he loved the pleasures of the city. Maybe he thought it was so much fun there. He enjoyed it unbelievably. I mean, he just loved the city. Maybe it just had a real big grip on his heart. Maybe he had so like been just corrupted by sin, he couldn't even see it anymore. Maybe he didn't realize how horrific the situation was. Maybe he didn't believe the angels. Maybe again that he just loved the grand parties and all the wonder of living in Sodom. We don't know exactly what took place, but the angel sees him. And they drag him out. Now, what does this tell us? We see that this is done by what? The mercy of God. God is gracious to him and he grabs him by the hand and drags him out of this city. The Lord sends the angels again to drag him out and he's drug out and it's a marvelous picture of grace. God is, is pulling him out of this city of darkness. Judgment is about to sweep him away and God pulls him out. I mean, do you ever think about the marvelous grace of God? Some of you could speak of this in your life. Some of you may not re remember it in this way, but some here have probably been walking headlong into destruction and God by His radical grace rescued you out. You were not running after God. You were running after sin and God radically saved you. What a glorious picture this is of the mercy and grace of God. Now notice what happens here in verses 18-23 through 23 as we're kind of moving through this passage. If you look at that passage, here's what happens. The angels say, go flee to the mountains. Get out of the valley. Get away from the city of destruction. Get out of this valley and flee to the mountains. And Lot's like, I can't do that. I might die if I do that. 
He has just been rescued from the wrath of God to come, and now he's worried about whether he's going to live. God has been overwhelming him with grace. God radically saved him. He was just saved from probably death and things unmentionable, and now he's afraid. Now as we keep going through that, I just think it's important. What does he want to do? He says, I want to go to that little city. Potentially a little Sodom. I want to go to that little place. It's not like big like Sodom. The sin's maybe not as great. Let me go there and so I won't die. I just want to go to that city. And the angel of the Lord allows him to do so. He escapes to a city. And when the sun had risen, destruction came. Now notice what verse 24 and 25 says, Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. It was total desolation. It was nothing was left. Nothing living was left in the city. All is gone. The ability to live life there is gone. Everything is destroyed. It is complete annihilation. God will judge the wicked and they will be destroyed. But listen to me, every time you see one of these small judgments, you understand that the Bible speaks of a judgment where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched and it is perpetual. It is an eternal judgment. This is the place of the wicked and this is where they will be. But notice verse 26. Lot's wife. She maybe one one author said she was physically brought out of the city, but her heart might have remained there. She wanted one last look. Maybe it was her possessions, her reputation, her relationships, some particular lust. We don't know, but she took one last look and she was destroyed herself. As we conclude in twenty seven through twenty nine, we see Abraham there. And we see what's taking place. It's very powerful because what happens is um, the Lord's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, interesting thing here in verse 29. It says, So it was <clears throat> that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Then he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered the prayers of Abraham. God remembered him. Abraham was part of God's plan to rescue Lot. Second Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man. We think about it and think, how is this possible? By the sovereign grace of God, God considered him righteous. Somehow, Lot must have believed the Lord, but he had fallen into sin. And Abraham prays him out. By the grace of God and the empowerment of God and the initiation of God, He prays Him out of destruction. There's something very powerful as you're seeing that in Abraham's role in his life. Now, the last little portion here, and then we're going to be concluded today. In verses 30-38, through 38, Lot goes to that city, and then maybe because of fear that he was going to be killed. I mean, we don't know what was going on. Maybe fear of destruction. Maybe the city was so wicked he thought, I can't stay here. He ends up going to the mountains, moving into a cave, and he and his daughters are there. If you think about the contrast between Abraham and Lot, Lot Abraham is there. He's getting up in the morning. He, is, he has been blessed through his obedience. There's no question the Lord is working. But Lot is here all alone, and he is sitting there in the darkness of a cave, and his daughters decide, we need children And so they get their father drunk, have relations with him, and they end up getting pregnant. It is a dark, dark story. There's nothing about this that's beautiful. Sin has taken Lot. 
further than he ever wanted to go. And as I heard someone say, he's taken further than he ever wanted to go. It, it, it took him, it, it cost him more than he ever wanted to pay. It just blows you away because his sin continues over and over and over. And it's so broken. And it's so unbelievable. And it's so hard to grasp. Now, if you look at our culture, you live here. You live in America and you watch it. And someone this morning said, what are the next 20 years going to have for us? What will this culture look like in 20 years? What's going to happen when we see in America things just continue to perpetuate as we rebel and turn against God? I mean, what is going to be the hope for them? I mean, there is something about this that we look at this story and think, whoa, this could be in our this could be our story as a nation in some 20 years. And then you even look within the church and think, is it any different there? Has the church lost its way? And I would just say to you this morning, what do we do? What does God call the righteous to do in the midst of a dark and horrific situation? I, I, what, what do we do? Take guns out and say, hey, let's blast the world. We hate the world. The world's our enemy. I just want to attack them. I tell you what, what we should do is just burn all those heretics out there and just destroy those people who do not or are indulged in all kinds of sin. Is that God's plan? Sometimes I mentioned that earlier. Sometimes you hear people talk and you think, good night. They hate homosexuals. They hate this. They hate that. They love materialism. But they hate all these things. And boy, I just can't stand those people. Is that God's plan? I think it's dangerous to think that way. What, is God, what does God show us here? What did He show us in the life of Abraham? Who's He praying for? Who is He sent out to pray for? What does God initiate in Him? He prays for the city. What does God call His people to? It's to preach the Gospel. What do we know about ourselves? For we once were, the Scripture says, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. So what do we say? We say, oh God, save them. Lord, the world is filled with darkness. Our culture is in a horrific situation. God, show up. By Your Spirit, awaken dead hearts. Bring them to repentance and faith. Show us something like that, Lord. We want to see that in our generation. 1 Corinthians 6 speaks of the church of Corinth. And he says, you were once this. You were homosexuals, effeminate, drunkards, and all these things. But God changed you. What's the opportunity we have? It is to be a Gospel-centered church that walks out into this community with this Gospel and speaks to them light in darkness. What the Scripture says in Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has come. When Jesus came on the scenes in Luke 1, it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall, shall, sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We love people. 
we preach Christ. By our lives and our actions, we are seeking to do good to those who are caught in darkness because we know that Sodom is coming. That God will not cease to judge sin. You need to know that this morning, God will judge sin. You think, oh, it's all happy. Everything's so great. I've got this and I've got that. I'm living it up. And yet there's coming a day where God will judge sin. But He has offered grace to those who will repent and believe the Gospel. What is the biggest issue the church has? Often our lives do not reflect our profession. As a church, we don't need to be like Lot, but rather walk in the ways of Abraham. The Scripture says, do not love the world nor the things of the world, for all that is in the world desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from this world. What do you do? Now listen. What do you do if you see a brother or sister stumbling? Well, what do you do in that situation? Listen to this just because I want you to see it because I think Abraham is used as an example for us to see. What do you do when, when your brother or sister is Lot? What do you do in that situation? He prayed over and over. But Jude says this, be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and, and, and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the... the Garment stained by the corrupted flesh. What's he saying? You go out into this world and you are longing for believers to come to, to, to a, a, a right living before God. You want them to embrace righteousness and walk in truth. You don't want their lives to be destroyed by sin. You are constantly crying out to one another, let us walk in the ways of God. Let us walk in truth. Let us lead each other to righteousness and truthfulness and goodness in the ways of God. Let us reflect the character of God so that we can walk out in the world as one man in a sense and go out into this darkness and speak light both with our life and the way that we speak words of the Gospel. That is the call here. I believe for us that God is merciful and He is calling people everywhere to repent and believe the Gospel so that they may escape the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that we will not be so caught up in this present age. Lord, You know my own struggle to be caught up in this present world. God, I pray we would not be so captivated by the loves of this world that our lives would not be so filled up with even what would be considered the pleasures of this world or the good things of this world or the bountiful blessings of this world and lose our sight on You. God, may we love one another. May we seek to help each other grow in You and loving You and dr drive one another to, to walk in righteousness and truth. May we be a church that's prayerful, that is begging You to to do a mighty work in those around us. God, and I just pray we would be a light to this world. That we would proclaim the Gospel by our words and our deeds. And that we would see many come before Your wrath comes upon this earth. Lord, we know some here may have never turned to Christ. They are under Your wrath. 
They have no hope. May they see the glorious light of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.